Good morning. Welcome to those who are joining us online and in the Fellowship Hall this morning. Today, with the celebration of Palm Sunday, we enter into Holy Week. This culminating week, walking with Jesus from the triumphant entry on Palm Sunday to the Last Supper on Monday, Thursday, to the garden, the arrest, the trial, to the cross on Good Friday, marks the end of the 40-day season that we call Lent. So what does the word season mean to you? I, for one, really love that living here we experience all four seasons, even when we experience all four of them in the same week. <laughs> but truly what I love is that every season I see the world a little bit differently. I notice different things. I value different things. I look forward to different things, and I'm grateful for different things each spring, summer, winter, and fall. And I love that each season gives me a different perspective into who I am and who I want to be. At least for me, it seems like the start of each new season becomes a restart, a recenter on what matters in writing this part of the story of my life. So that's why I think it's so powerful that every year we intentionally remember and mark how the story of Jesus becomes our story too as God loves, God's love meets us, encounters us, redeems us in the different chapters of our life. And we live this story in seasons together, in Jesus' birth into our world at Christmas, in Jesus' teaching and miracles through Epiphany, in Jesus' road to the cross in Lent, in Jesus' betrayal and death in Holy Week, in Jesus' resurrection at Easter, in the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit into our lives at Pentecost, each season, we intentionally remember a different part of the story, and each one gives us a different perspective on how God meets us in lament, in sorrow, in waiting, in longing, in hope, in joy, in celebration. He is Lord in all seasons and of all seasons. And in every one, I see every year much more to love of his beautiful heart of grace for us. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that there is a time for everything and a season for every purpose under heaven. There is a time to mourn and a time to dance. Lent, Easter. There's a time to tear and a time to mend. Repentance, redemption. And what this tells us is that no matter what season we're in, we can find God at work in it. And he meets us where we are in our story, and he will work with us even there for our good. And as we see in the Palm Sunday story, before some things can truly be mended in us, sometimes first there are things that need to be torn down. And you might think that mending is good and tearing is bad, but if you are trying to build something and you discover your foundation is bad, you can keep on trying to mend it, brace it, duct tape it, put in more nails, but the truth is you're not in the season to mend. <laughs> you're in the season to tear down because nothing can be built right on a wrong foundation. And it's going to feel terrible, but the best decision you can make at that point is to tear it all down and start again on a solid foundation before you sink another penny into what won't stand. And the truth is, we human beings seem to be experts in building our lives on the wrong things, things that don't last. The more we try to build our self-worth, our peace, our relationships with God and each other on our own abilities, 
the less able we are to see the foundation Jesus has already laid for us, a foundation on his grace that can never be shaken. And that's why on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before the cross, Jesus shows us that before the relationship between God and humankind could be mended, first there were things that would need to be torn down. And those things might surprise you, especially since we are still constantly tempted to try to build up our own versions of those false foundations over and over again. Leading up to that Palm Sunday, people had heard about Jesus, his miracles to heal and to feed and to calm the wind and the waves, to drive out demons, even raise Lazarus back to life after he had been dead four days. The people had been waiting for a new King David to rise up and bring their people back to their glory days, to make things like they used to be. They'd been waiting for God to raise up a Messiah, to come into power and to make all things right for them. And they felt this Jesus might be the one to take them back to the top, to build on the foundation of their hopes and dreams, with the backing of their agendas of power, to take back their land and rule for them in God's name. Hosanna, they shouted, save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the problem with all that, they'd soon discover, was that Jesus did come in the name of the Lord. And his agenda was not theirs. The foundation they were trying to build on to mend what they felt was broken in their world could not possibly bear the weight of what God was working to accomplish. The kingdom of God cannot be contained by any kingdom of this world. The leaders in those crowds thought that they were thinking big and trying to get Jesus to help them take on Rome. But in reality, their foundation, even their definition of who his people were, was far smaller than what God had in mind. The foundation to be laid for the kind of kingdom work God intended to accomplish in Jesus would need to be big enough, strong enough, enduring enough to support all the world, all who would come and tell the end of time. And those who were looking to build their own kingdoms of earth couldn't see what God was building or what it would take to save, to mend the real brokenness of the world. The kind of king they wanted Jesus to be would have ridden into Jerusalem on a warrior's horse to take advantage of the political support and rally the crowds to his favor, win over the masses to his agenda, and take power. Because that's how those who seek to rule rally power. Worldly power is about the ability to influence and mobilize people to one's own purpose. But from the very beginning of this day, we see Jesus is not interested in that. When he entered Jerusalem, Jesus sent his disciples to find a colt, a foal of a donkey for him to ride, because the king he was and is was the one God's prophet Zechariah had said would come in Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. 
Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. Jesus comes as the king of peace, who comes not to conquer the nations, but redeem them, to proclaim peace to them. And from sea to sea, to the ends of the earth, that is his kingdom. And his work is not to conquer or subdue people, but to conquer and subdue the power of sin and death, to mend the broken relationship between God and humankind, to establish a new covenant in his blood that will free the prisoners and restore us in ways we couldn't even begin to imagine. No one in that crowd yelling, Hosanna, save us, had any idea what they were asking from the Son of the living God. But Jesus did. And he also could see what they were not seeing. Jesus could see that all the Pharisees saw was fear. Because if the rebels in the crowd had their way, a riot could break out, fighting against Rome that would end in a bloodbath. Or the people could try to crown Jesus king of the Jews, challenging the authority of Herod. That would not end well. Or they could demand that he be hailed as a prophet, challenging their spiritual authority. And they did not believe for a moment that God was in this. It seemed to them that Jesus was accepting praise that he shouldn't be accepting. So they indignantly demand that he shut this down right now. In Luke 19, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. How is it that stones would recognize the Son of God in our presence and we don't? What keeps us from seeing who Jesus is and where he is with us today? Are we so blinded by our fears about what might happen or so distracted by our own dreams of glory or power of what we want to happen that we can't see where Jesus is here and now with us? Are we looking? Was anyone asking, Jesus, where are you leading this procession? Because of all of the speculation thrown around that day about what Jesus' coming might mean for them and for the world, no one imagined what Jesus actually came to do. God's ways are not our ways. We are so blinded by searching for what we think we will see in him that we actually fail to see who our Lord is and what he asks of us and what he brings to us. It's human nature to want God's blessings to look like what we already want to build. We might think blessings are supposed to look like earthly prestige, that that must obviously be what God wants for us, power and control, but if you take a look at human history, it shows us that unfortunately those things very rarely lead to Christ-like lives. In anyone but Jesus, it seems, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And in reality, Jesus' church grows most in the world when it's not in possession of worldly power. It's growing fastest now in China and India and Africa, where it's a movement of the Holy Spirit in the human heart, where it's not instituted by laws or power structures. Because every time faith in God is attempted to be put into a framework of forced fealty, who came quickly stops being a vibrant daily relationship of trust in God 
listening for God's presence and responding to him, and becomes instead a dry human duty, an obligation to a structure, or a tool that people yield over others, rather than a song of love that draws the heart and transforms the world from the inside out. In any parable of Jesus, you will see that his kingdom, the kingdom of God, is a transforming movement, like seeds that grow up from the ground. But we can't control that kind of movement, and human beings like to control, so we conveniently forget that God's power works best through our weakness, and that it's shown most powerfully through sacrificial love, through the cross, that the greatest among you, King Jesus says, in his kingdom, will be the servant of all. Instead, just like those crowds, we want a king, we want a God who will build on the foundation of our agendas and ambitions and give us power and glory instead of drawing us into what we actually need to become his people, which honestly sometimes is for our faulty foundations we've been building up and putting our faith in to be torn down. There is a time to tear and a time to mend. Look at Jesus at this moment. When Jesus could have taken earthly power, it wouldn't have been hard to do at this point. If he would have wanted to, Jesus could have begun an earthly rule of Jerusalem that day, challenged Rome and its idols, replaced corrupt King Herod. And if you'll remember, this was one of the devil's temptations to Jesus, to rule over people in power. And if taking over earthly government was his plan, he could have done that. It's not what Jesus chose because it's not how his kingdom grows. Instead, where is Jesus' attention in this moment? Jesus is looking at the crowds and weeping. He sees in them not tools to manipulate, but hearts that have moved far away from the heart of their God. And he weeps to know because they're putting their faith in man-made powers and glories, their story is on a path to destruction. He knows that foundation will fail them. And in this moment when people are thinking of him as a tool for their agenda, he's heartbroken to see what they can't see. Luke 19, 42, Jesus says, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus weeps because he knows just how long kingdoms built on human ambition last. In fact, he's very clear with his disciples about this. A few chapters later in Luke 21, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Historically, that would be 70 A.D., less than 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. See, the things that impress people on earth are usually not what matters for eternity. And yet, we are constantly tempted to build on them over and over again. And so the Pharisees and the people are shocked when Jesus does not do what they expect. When none of the outcomes that they had feared or hoped for, as the case may be, came to pass. From this moment of Jesus' glory on Palm Sunday, there is no attempt to overthrow Rome's governance. There's no attempt to unseat Herod as the king of the Jewish people. There's no attempt to overthrow the power of the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees. But there is one place where things are thrown over. 
And it's important that we notice where. Because it shows what matters to the kingdom of God. When Jesus steps into the temple where God alone should be honored, sought, worshipped, and obeyed, what he finds is a market-like atmosphere where hearts are more fixated on using other people's money to build their own kingdoms rather than seeking God's. When even in the place where God alone should be honored, human ambition has seeped into the foundation of what's being built, it's time to tear it down. Right here, right now, is where the rebuilding must begin. Luke 19, 45, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus shows no interest in toppling or co-opting earthly politics and power, but where his people start worshiping their own efforts rather than God, Jesus will throw over those tables every single time. And this is love. Because let's face it, it's hard for us to turn over those tables. But nothing eternal can be built on a foundation of human striving. We need a better foundation. Jesus turns the tables on us so we can't be fooled into thinking that our actions can purchase righteousness with God. So we can't think that what God wants of us is just to give him some token of our lives while our hearts are actually committed elsewhere. Because in what they were doing in the temple, these people were fulfilling the letter of the law. They were equipping people to make sacrifices. But they were not worshiping God, but the idols of their self-interest. How often do we, how often do we get caught up in the actions of faith and forget to bring the heart? To forget to actually seek the Lord that we're claiming to worship? How often do we just pursue what we want and then try to attach Jesus' name to it and not even notice if where he's leading is not to our glory but to a call of sacrificial love? What has been building up in our heart that keeps us from seeing Jesus as he is, as our Lord? What is it the season to tear down this holy week in the temple of our hearts? As Jesus told his disciples, one day the beautiful, holy, sacred temple dedicated to the worship of the living God would be torn down by enemies, and it would shock God's people to the core. How could God let that happen? Because it's not the temple that makes things holy, but the God who is worshipped in it. And when the house of prayer becomes a den of robbers, it's time for something new to be built to the glory of that same God. But to keep us from worshiping our human achievements, this temple would be built on the foundation of Jesus' work alone. Following his actions in the temple, Jesus has a conversation with the Pharisees in Luke 20, 17, where speaking of himself, he tells them God's plan for the new thing he was building. Jesus says of himself, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Because one day people would no longer bring sacrifices. Because in the new covenant between God and humankind, God himself is the one bringing the sacrifice. The Son of God comes to lay down his life to pay the price for our sin. So his righteousness alone becomes the foundation of our relationship with God, not our own. When the Son sets us free, we will be free indeed. 
by the covenant made for us in his blood, we are adopted into the family as sons and daughters of God. Now, it has always been true that salvation can only come from the Lord. Our mending cannot come from what we build, achieve, or earn, but only from what we're given and receive from the hands of God. His house always was to be a house of prayer because life and salvation can only come from him. And Holy Week makes that come clear. Jesus said, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. In order for us to be rebuilt on Jesus' foundation of grace, we first need to fall on him and be broken. To confess, we don't have it all together. We are not holy. We are not capable of keeping all the commandments. There's not enough sacrifices in the world to atone for our inability to love God with all our hearts and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So we throw ourselves on Jesus and we confess. And the perfect image we try so hard to maintain is shattered into pieces. And now, he can begin to build. Through the cross, Jesus tears down the system we try to build of our own righteousness, of the control we think we want, but that in reality becomes a prison of anxiety and fear and doubt. And instead, he becomes the cornerstone of a whole new covenant built on his righteousness for us. He is enough. Ephesians 2 tells us, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is what Jesus came to build, God's holy temple reimagined. In John 4, when speaking to the woman at the well, Jesus gives some insight into what this temple will look like. Jesus tells her and us there will be a time when people will worship God, not just in Jerusalem or on her holy mountain. The temple God is building is made of human hearts around the world. 
Jesus says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. You see, the Savior who came to earth, who went to the cross to redeem you, makes your heart the holy court of his worship. And the joy of the freedom and the mercy of this new covenant of grace leads us into true worship and praise, grateful for who he is and what he's done. But being human beings, it isn't long before we start falling back into our own patterns and start building up our false foundations, our idols of our own righteousness once again. And that's why it's so good that we celebrate Jesus' story as our story, season after season. Because we need this dedicated time of spring cleaning of the heart. To ask Jesus to turn the tables on us once again, to tear down the false and help us see the true foundation of his grace for us again. There is a time to tear and a time to mend. So today, what do you need to let Jesus tear down in you? What has gotten built up in your heart that's a false reliance on your own righteousness instead of his? Ask the Holy Spirit to show you idols, assumptions, or fears that keep you from seeing Jesus with you as he is, as your Lord, and keeps you from seeing you as who you are in him, as his own forever. Confess to Jesus you need him to take those things to the cross for you this week. Let him tear down those lies. And then ask, what do you need to let his Holy Spirit reteach you, show you, build up in you on the foundation of Jesus' grace, God's love for you? Because Jesus came for you to save you, redeem you, to be your new beginning by his grace alone, in his righteousness. We confess, Jesus, we need you to be the foundation of our hope and our salvation, not us. And we thank you for going to the cross for us. We thank you that you allowed all of your rights and privileges and powers as the Son of God to be torn down for our sin so we can be built up as part of your eternal kingdom of grace. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you what needs mending in your life. What does God want to make new in your relationship with God or others? And as you submit it to Jesus and let him do his work in you, may his holy temple be built in your heart through every season of this life we're given into eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we remember your work for us this Palm Sunday, you know the walls that get built up in our lives between us and you, between us and other people. Walls that we believe are for our own protection, but that actually keep us from the life that you mean for us. So give us the courage today to let you tear down the things that need toppling in our lives. So you can build us up on the foundation of your grace. Turn the tables on me, Jesus. Show me both the reality of my need for you and the reality of your rescue of me this week. As we remember together the price you paid for us. Hosanna, Lord, save us and make us yours forever. Amen.